Okay, we'll go ahead and get things started and uh, we'll see if uh, some other people trickle in. Um, but uh, thank you all for being here this morning. Uh, sorry, this afternoon. <laughs> um, today, I'm going to be talking about change. And before we dive into that um, uh, gargantuan topic, uh, the normal reminders uh, during the presentation, if you keep your mic muted, uh, keep your camera off, um, you can raise your hand. I'll try to keep an eye on the chat box. If you have questions during the presentation, I'll periodically stop and, and try, to, try to catch all those. Um, I'll take questions at the end as well. At that point, if you just want to unmute yourself and ask a question, that's fine. Or if you wanted to put it in the chat box, I can relay it that way. All right, our topic today is dealing with change. Um, if you don't know me, my name is Miles Smith. I'm in uh, learning and development, or we've uh, rebranded as talent management, and I'm a program manager here. I did a lot of research for this topic for a foundational leader curriculum on change management, and that's where most of this stuff comes from. The focus of that, if you've taken that before, um, you, you're familiar with the content, the focus of that one was more leading through change. And so that one got a lot into uh, the logistics and actually making a plan for how are we going to facilitate this change and make it happen in a, in a sort of nuts and bolts sense, along with considering the people aspect of it. How do you manage the people along with the processes when you're when you're uh, enacting change? So if that's of interest to you, you're welcome to look that up in Rush University. It'll go more into detail in that stuff. This focuses more on an individual level, understanding when you go through change, what can you expect to happen to you and to those around you? So you understand uh, what's going on with your team, uh, with your coworkers, whether you're managing or whether you're an individual contributor, this is sort of across the board. And then looking at if we know that, what actions can we take to make change as positive and productive an experience as possible? All right, so with that said, this is what we would all like to see happen with change. Uh, ideally, uh, we have a change and it starts and then time goes forward and we just get more productive and we get happier the whole time. Unfortunately, statistically speaking, that happens 0% of the time. Uh, this just is not the way it works. A lot of the research that I got for this presentation and for a lot of the foundational leader course I got from a book called Wired to Resist, uh, written by a woman who looked at a bunch of uh, neuroscience research that basically concluded that our brains are, as the title says, wired to resist. So this is not the way change works. We don't just say, yay, I like this change and go along with it. Sometimes it is good. Sometimes there's changes that we embrace more than others. But in general, resistance to change is normal. And it looks more like this. This is called the change curve. And if you ever hear someone talk about the change curve or you see it mentioned, this is what they're usually talking about. It was uh, developed by a couple of researchers named Kubler and Ross, hence the name, the Kubler-Ross change curve. Uh, and so what this shows is, if you notice the y-axis, is the level of energy. Uh, but then along the way, you see different uh, emotions being expressed with that level of energy. And so as you go forward in time, there's shock, denial, anger, depression. So it's kind of up and down. You'll also, if you look at these words, it might look familiar. You might notice that it sounds a lot like the grief process that we're all familiar with from movies and TV shows and things like that. Uh, that's because that's where they got this from. They adapted the traditional seven stages of grief into uh, change, because in a sense, change is grieving what you're used to have and then having to move forward with that. So this is more accurate, obviously, than just going up and up and up in the dream curve. Uh, there are some issues with this. One is that it's very static and not all change is the same. Another is that when you look at this model, it makes it look like a roller coaster, like a ride that you're on, something you're experiencing as opposed to something you're participating in. So that book that I mentioned, Wired to Resist, was written by a woman named 
Britt Andreata, and she synthesizes all of this neuroscience and neurobiology research. She herself is not a neuroscientist. So she reads all that stuff, translates it into normal people language, and then says, okay, well, what does this mean for our lives and our work? So she came up with an alternate model. This is called the change quest model. And you'll notice the shape is different. You'll notice the y-axis says disruption and resistance. So instead of energy level, it's as you go through this change, how much disruption and resistance can you expect along the way? And you'll see you start with resistance, then resignation, then you embrace, and then engagement. And by the end, you've gone through a lot of disruption and resistance, and then everything gets back to normal. You'll also notice in the beginning, you're focused on the past, the losses, how did things used to be? How was it better before? What do I not have anymore? And then once you get over that hump, you're focused on the future, you're focused on gains. Now that this is here, what am I going to be able to get from it? How can I make it work for me? How is this good? This is the normal change curve. So the big takeaway here is that if you sense resistance during a change, that doesn't mean that you're a bad employee. If someone around you is resisting change, it doesn't mean they're a bad employee. They may be, but not for that reason. Uh, the, what it's telling you is that your body, your brain, your neuroscience is wired to resist the change that it's going through. And that is part of the process. Uh, if you embrace every change on the fly, then it this goes all the way back to our ancestors when they were trying not to get eaten by predators. If you embrace every change, then you're going to get eaten by a predator. This, this, all of this basically goes back to not getting eaten by predators, you know, however many years ago. Uh, so when you see resistance to change, that is normal. So if we know that, then how can we deal with so deal with it? So one of the other advantages of this curve when you're looking at it from that perspective is you can adapt this to look like the change you're actually going through. So maybe you're going through a change like this, which is going to take a while, but it's not a huge disruption. It's a minor change. You're still going to have to deal with it, uh, but it's not a huge disruption to your life. So it might look like this, or you might have a change that looks like this, uh, where you have a really significant change, but it's very quick. It's going to happen all at once, a very quick major changeover. It's going to result in a very steep climb in a very difficult period, followed by a very quick descent, and then you're back to normal. So you can adjust that model based on what your actual situation looks like, and then kind of think, looking forward, what can I expect to see? Okay. Uh, she actually calls this uh, the change journey. Uh, so I mentioned that the uh, the Kubler-Ross model treats it more as a roller coaster, something you're a passive participant in. Her calling it the change journey makes it more something that you are tackling with, and therefore something you can take action on at every step of the way. And that's why we're we're here today. We're here to talk about that. Uh, before we get to the actions, you can take a little bit more about understanding change. So what change does to you? First of all, uh, we're going to talk about motivation. Uh, this comes from a book called Drive by Daniel Pink where he synthesized decades of motivational research about what, what truly motivates people deeply over a long period of time. Uh, and what he came up with was, after looking at all of this research, was people are fundamentally motivated by autonomy. They want to feel like they're in control. Mastery, they want to feel like they're good at something and improving at something. And contribution, they want to feel like they're giving to something more than just themselves, right? So if we think about these three things, during change, one of the things that happens is you're going to feel less in control because a lot of times the change was not a choice, or even if it was, you're not able to do all the things you were before. So you're going to feel less in control, less a sense of autonomy. Also, you're going to feel less confident. Uh, excuse me, competent. Even if that's not true, you are likely to feel that way because things you used to be able to do without thinking, you now have to stop and think about them. You have to learn new things. So you're going to lose a little bit of that sense of mastery. 
and contribution along with losing that sense of mastery, you might feel less useful because you might not be contributing as productively, as efficiently as you used to while you adapt to the change. Add all of that up and it results in demotivation. These are your fundamental motivators and they can all be affected by change. So it is normal during change to how all of a sudden be dragging yourself out of bed in the morning more than you used to, to have to kind of get yourself pumped up a little more than you used to just to do your normal job. It might be a little bit harder for you to get engaged. That's normal. Um, it's it's not a problem that's going to necessarily just disappear. And so it's not ignore the problem, go away situation. But that if you're feeling that way, it doesn't mean it's time to quit. It just means that you are experiencing a change in a normal way. Also, stress. Need to talk a little bit about stress. Sometimes people talk about stress and what they really mean is pressure. Because um, a lot of times people do work well under pressure. Uh, some people are just wired that way. That's different than stress, though. Stress specifically is a fight or flight syndrome. Uh, again, going back to not getting eaten by a predator, right? So what fight, what stress does is it triggers the fight or flight. And when that happens, first of all, it gives you a burst of energy because you need to be able to uh, to run or to fight. So you need extra energy for that. It makes you extremely aware of everything that's going on around you. Uh, because you're looking for the predators, you're going to be attacked from behind, whatever. Uh, it also makes you reactive. You need to react on a hair trigger. You need to be able to react in a split second. But we're not running from predators. We're dealing with like SAP reports and stuff. So some of this stuff is a little bit outdated, but we're still running the same programs. So that burst of energy is going to make you want to take action and do something. Uh, but you might not be in a position to do that. So that's going to be frustrating. Uh, it's going to make you very aware. But what that can be is you're going to look at everything around you you're going to start questioning things. And since things have changed, you're not going to know all the answers you used to, and your brain is going to be actively looking for those. And it's going to put you on a hair trigger. So this is why under stress, uh, people sometimes lash out more quickly and more severely than they used to. Or, and this is important to understand as well, some people don't react that way. Some people don't lash outwards, they withdraw inwards. That's just as negative, it's just way less visible. So that's, un that's, that's something you need to understand as well, is that some people, their reaction to stress is they withdraw. And they might withdraw faster and more deeply and more quickly than they would under normal circumstances because of that stress. Now, stress during a short period does all those things to make sure you don't get eaten by a predator or deal with the situation. However, if you're under stress for a long period of time, chronic stress can be really, really bad because all of the things that it does to your body to make these things happen can result in your blood pressure going up. It's pumping blood harder. It's moving more oxygen around, which is good for a short burst of energy. But if you're under stress for a long time, that's like redlining your engine. It's going to do damage over time. Also, your body is looking for energy to be able to deal with things. So it's going to increase your appetite. Uh, that's normal. Stress eating is actually a real biological response. Unfortunately, stress eating, you're not really going to have an impulse to eat a kale salad. You're going to have an impulse to eat a Snickers bar uh, because your body specifically wants fat. Um, it wants to have it on hand so it can burn it in, in case of emergency. So your body is not going to say, great, go grab a kiwi. It's going to say, great, go grab some chocolate. So you need to be aware that that's one thing that's going on. Also, I'm going to go through the brain real quick so you understand what's firing upstairs that's causing some of these reactions. I'm going to use the actual scientific terms for parts of the brain. Feel free to completely ignore those because I'll explain what they actually mean. But if you're a sciencey person, I'll put those in there. So first is the amygdala, which is that's the part of the brain that triggers the fight or flight response. Um, used to, you know, make sure that you didn't get eaten by a predator. Now it gets triggered when all of a sudden uh, process changes or procedure changes or something like that. Uh, but we already kind of went through 
what fight or flight looks like. And so rhinal cortex, this is your mental GPS. It creates maps, it creates physical maps. So this is how you know where everything is in the warehouse or in the office. It also creates social maps. You basically have an org chart. And when that changes, uh, either socially or physically, any of that mapping changes, your brain has to take time to build a new map. So even if it's a change that's not really substantively changing the way your job works, if it's, for example, rearranging the warehouse, once that's done, your brain is going to have to, instead of auto-programming a route, going to have to manually map it again. Same thing with an org chart. If people's roles change, if personnel changes, and so it's going to slow you down a little bit and it's going to burn a few extra calories trying to do that. So it's going to make you a little bit slower and it's going to make you a little bit more tired. The basal ganglia is the habit center. That's what forms habits. So you do things over and over again. They get stored here and it's like running a macro in Excel. You just hit a button and it happens. So there's plenty of things that we all do all the time that we don't think about. Uh, what happens during change, however, is that uh, you have to form new habits. And so that, again, kind of like the GPS, it's going to take time to build those, to reprogram it, and then make it an automatic routine like it used to be. That's going to burn some calories and it's going to slow you down some. And then finally, the Havanula is, this one's, This is really interesting. Uh, these are the failure guardrails. Your brain is trying to steer you to be successful and steer you away from failure. And your brain has learned that the things you do over and over again at work or in any kind of uh, thing you're used to doing, that that's successful. So when you go and you do a good job, it releases things like serotonin that give you a boost to your mood and a boost to your energy. That's a way of saying, yes, go do more of that. I want you doing that, so I'm going to give you energy to go do that. If you try to do something that it has experienced failure with, it's literally going to restrict resources. It does not want you to fail. So if, uh, if, it, if a process changes, it's going to say, no, 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 we do it the old way. That's the success. If you try to do it differently, your body is literally going to make you tired. So you, so it's harder for you to do it that way. It's trying to, it's like bumpers in a bowling alley. It's trying to steer you back the other direction. So it's going to take some time to retrain your brain on what does success mean and what does failure mean. And in the interim, it is going to be harder to do things. And it sometimes can be physically harder to do a mental task because it's restricting your energy. It doesn't want you to do it. So all of this is to say, that there's a lot of biology going on here. Your body is wired to resist change. Uh, there's a way to get through it, and we'll talk about that in one second. That's the next slide. This isn't all doom and gloom. Uh, but my point here is that this is biology, not attitude. It is possible to have a good attitude or a bad attitude about change, but that's separate from this sense of resistance. Resisting change is normal. If, for example, you are going through change with a team and you see people around you being negative, there are ways to, to help them and ways for them to help themselves, but that does not mean that they are bad employees. People don't just naturally embrace change. Uh, so you need to be prepared that that's what you experience when you go through change. So what can you do? The first thing is if we know all this, we know this is how the brain reacts. We know this is the process of change and what it looks like. Uh, what we can do is we can plan ahead of time. If you try to deal with change, minute by minute as you go through it, you're going to fail. Because as we all know, failing to plan is planning to fail, which probably was not said by Benjamin Franklin, even though if you Google it, that's the name you're going to see all over the place. I did some research. It turns out there's really no evidence he ever said that, but whatever. Anyway, so we know that change looks like this, and we can predict disruption and resistance. Not to, not to, to pinpoint accuracy, but we know this is the general arc of things. So what you can do is you can think, I know this change is coming, and you can actually, when it says time at the bottom, put the time down there. So put 
beginning of July at the beginning and then try to estimate how long is this going to take? Is it going to be over in December? Well, if that's the case, where is this going to be worse? Where can I expect a lot of resistance, expect to be resigned, expect to have a lot of disruption to what I'm doing? And then if you know that, then you know, okay, if I can just make it through this part, the next thing that'll happen is this will start to get easier and I can start to embrace change. So that's the first thing to do is to think about it in this context. Then you need to be aware and assess what the disruption is. So think about what the change is that's coming. Is it going to change what you do, your job functions, what actually happens when you're at work? Is it going to change how you do things? Are processes and procedures going to change? You're going to have to learn how to do them a new way. Is it going to change any physical landscape? Because there's a mental GPS that's going to have to reprogram. Even if that's the only thing that changes, that is part of the change. And so you need to be aware that change curve is still going to be, uh, is still going to be uh, activated there. And then finally, the who. Uh, again, mental GPS, you've got a mental org chart, and it's going to take a little time for your brain to adapt to that. So it's going to slow you down a little bit, make you a little bit more tired, uh, even if it's just personnel changes. So think about that. Go through each one of these, what's being changed. Then once you know that, you can actually map out your journey. So it might look like this. Okay, so this is a fairly steep curve, um, goes about halfway down the, the timeline there. Uh, so this, you know, looks a lot like the basic curve, you know, so so maybe it's it's significant disruption, but not to an extreme level. But but this is really something that, that's pretty big you need to tackle. So uh, for this example, let's say this is maybe uh, having to change a, a process or a procedure at work, a new way that you uh, interact with the system or or uh, a new way you have to communicate with customers, something like that that's significant. It's going to take you some time to get used to it. Then you can have multiple changes going on at the same time. So map them over each other because these don't things don't happen in isolation. So uh, let's say this one is that you're moving some things around at work. You're just moving some storage from one area to another. That's low disruption, but it's not zero disruption. So it's got a very low curve. It's going to take some time to get everything moved over there. And then you're going to have to get used to going to that place instead of the other place. So that does happen. That is an that is that is an experience you're going to have. You're, you're going to go through a change process with this. It's just lower. But we're going to put that on the timeline as well, because we know when we're going to start doing this. And, you know, then we can estimate when it's going to finish. Now, another important point. Your brain does not care whether you're at work or you're at home. Change is change, and it deals with all of it using the same pool of resources. So let's say, in addition to all of this, you're planning to move from one house to another. That's a really significant change. So that's a really steep curve here. And once it starts, it's an extreme disruptance until it's over. But once you get moved, then it's like, okay, we can put everything away and then we're fine. So we're going to use that as the example for this for this steep orange curve here. So these are the three changes that you've got that you're looking at on this timeline and you've mapped out when they're all starting. Okay. Now that you know this, now that you've mapped out these changes, you can say, okay, here, and we can look at our timeline and that's maybe mid-July or something. So, okay, mid-July, I'm going to have a lot coming at me. And then this is maybe um, late August. Okay, late August, gonna have a whole lot coming at me at that point. And then in between those, and this is you know sometime in between those two dates, there's a low point. But you do notice you do have three curves intersecting here. So there is a, a, a phenomenon of, of, of accumulation of change, of change fatigue. So if you have a lot of changes that you're experiencing at once, then you can kind of, even if they're not big, that you can kind of get bogged down just by the sheer number of changes. So. Sometimes you can do this, sometimes you can't. But one thing you can try to do is maybe move some of these. 
Maybe you're planning to move and you say, I've got all this other stuff going on. Let's bump this back just a couple of weeks. That'll give me a little bit of breathing room. And if we know we're going to, that blue line was moving storage from one place to another, maybe we actually move that forward because it's not that big a disruption. But then what that does is in that middle area here, it creates even more of a valley. So that's even more of a break. Remember about chronic stress. Stress in a burst, it serves a purpose, but if it's going on for a long time and you don't get a break from it, it's like redlining your engine. So this gives you an opportunity to take your foot off the gas for a little bit. So that's one approach is map your journey, figure out where you're gonna be able to rest, where you need to be prepared for a lot of disruption and resistance. And do you need to move things around a little bit to give yourself some breathing room? Okay, now also let's look at motivating yourself. So we talked about autonomy, mastery, and contribution, all of these taking a hit during the change process. So what can you do for each of these? For autonomy, take control of something. And I probably should have phrased that in a more friendly way because this implies that you should just go start doing your employee, your uh, coworkers jobs for them. I do not recommend that. But find something that's gonna make you feel more in control. Um, sometimes it could be something very small, such as go into your office and maybe rearrange things in your office if you know if your desk has kind of gotten away from you a little bit, uh, if you can find a couple minutes to do that. And also, again, uh, your brain does not differentiate between work and home. Uh, so go home and maybe uh, there's a task that needs to be done at home. Something you decide, I'm going to do this, this is when I'm going to do it, and this is how I'm going to do it. Um, and it can be difficult to find that time, but if you can carve out a little bit of time for that, it gives you a little bit of that sense of autonomy back. And then mastery, go do something you're good at. And at work, if there are things that you're, you're able to do that you feel really successful when you do them, try to seek out opportunities to do that. Or at home, if there's something you're really good at, make time to do that at home. If you're really good at uh, word working, if, you, if you're really good at working on engines, if you're really good at music, if, you're, if you sing, if, uh, if, you're, if you're a good cook, make sure that you have an opportunity to do that. Something that you feel like you're good at to give you some sense of mastery. And then finally, contribution is help somebody. And that could be at home, something like volunteering your charity or at work, go and see if anybody else needs help with something. You do get actual real physical boosts from helping other people, and that can give you a better sense of contribution. Even if you feel like uh, things have changed and you're struggling to get caught up, uh, you can immediately go see if somebody else needs needs some help with something. And that can have an actual literal biological effect on, on how you're feeling and how you're reacting. Also, you're going to need to take care of yourself during this change process. So uh, this part, I apologize if this comes off as preachy because I'm going to talk about nutrition and exercise. I am not a, uh, a always a, a model uh, citizen in this regard. So uh, if you're thinking, you know, that this is not necessarily your, your natural inclination of the direction to go, I, I'm completely there with you. Some people just on their own uh, initiative, just naturally gravitate towards healthy eating and exercise. If you do, then great. Uh, if not, then you're like me. And so what, what things can you do in this area? So there are small things you can do, such as one thing I do is I, I try to set a water goal. I try to drink 60 ounces of water a day. I have a 20 ounce bottle on my desk. So I try to, if I drink that three times a day, then congratulations, I've done something healthy. <laughs> Plan your snacks. Remember under stress, your body is going to be looking to eat and it's going to be looking to eat fatty stuff in particular um, and not healthy stuff. So bring some stuff with you and have it on hand. So if you want a Snickers bar, have an apple, maybe reward yourself with some chocolate after work or something so that every time you grab a snack, it's not chips or, or something like that. Uh, and then walking, it count does count as exercise. I've actually seen all kinds of interesting research about the effect of just short walks just to break up the monotony of sitting. 
Um, so, you know, if you get home from work, if you get the energy, maybe go for just a quick walk around the block. Even a little bit of motion like that actually does uh, move the needle. Um, it doesn't have to be going and running, you know, like a 5K or something like that. And then finally, instead of Netflix and chill, you can Netflix and apps. So you're going to go home and you're going to want to relax during these stressful periods. Totally fine. That is an opportunity maybe while you're watching uh, Ozark or something, which that maybe that's not the best thing to watch when you're trying to, you know, make yourself feel better. But anyway, while you're watching while you're watching TV, it's an opportunity to to stretch a little bit, maybe just do a couple of squats or something like that. You just move working a little bit of movement just so that it's not just a constant line of sedentary. Okay, the other thing is sleep, and there's a ton of research on the importance of sleep. If you don't get enough sleep, it's been it's been shown during through research to be linked to diabetes, obesity, and depression in a very real way. People that are not getting enough sleep, if you get an extra hour, that's been linked to increased happiness, increased creativity, and increased performance. So you will do your job better if you can get, manage to cram in an extra hour of sleep. Sleep in general has been linked to, or getting enough sleep has been linked to learning, which is important during change because you're gonna have to learn new things, to focus, to reacting and controlling emotions. So you're less likely to either lash out or withdraw on a trigger trigger. Uh, it's uh, uh, linked to more effective decision-making, problem solving, and to memory, which is good because you're gonna have to learn and remember new things. Okay, also mindfulness, this is the hippie portion, <laughs> but I'm trying to make this as practical as possible. So mindfulness can take the form of meditation, presence, or gratitude. And meditation really just comes down to sitting in there and being quiet for a little bit. And presence just comes down to not being stimulated by things. So, you know, I mentioned taking a short walk counts as exercise. So maybe when you do that, just don't put earbuds in and just give your brain a few minutes break. Uh, that counts as presence. Meditation, if you just Google meditation, basically it just means sitting there quietly for a few minutes. Um, but if you just Google it, there's different things you can do to, to kind of facilitate that. You know, in gratitude, you know, people talk about gratitude journals. I personally, when people talk about that stuff, I, I tend to kind of resist that. So if that's your, your, if that's your reaction, then I completely understand. But if you just kind of think, put a different spin on that and think, okay, well, what's going well right now? What am I doing a good job of? How, how have I managed to help somebody? How has somebody helped me? Put it in those terms. When you do these things, there, again, is research, um, particularly with meditation, that's linked to better health outcomes in a very real way, like reducing the effects of, of long-term illness and things like that. Uh, the ability to focus more reduces anxiety and worry. And this one's interesting. It shrinks the amygdala, which is the fight or flight uh, part of your brain. The part of your brain that triggers that fight or flight response actually literally gets smaller after several weeks of meditation of a few minutes a day. Um, so you're less likely to engage all of those uh, fight or flight negative things that go on. Also, play is really important, and play can take the form of a lot of things, so basically anything that's fun. So it could be games, which is normally what we think of when we, when we say play. It could be games or sports. It could be arts, so it could be singing, musical instrument, writing, uh, 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 painting, drawing, anything like that. Cooking is an art. It is artistic. It is a creative endeavor. So if you like to cook, that counts as play. And storytelling. If you just go and you get lunch with your friends and BS and tell stories from college, that counts as play. That is a creative endeavor. You're, you're relating a story to somebody else. So the, all of that counts as play. And when you engage in play, uh, that's linked to increased adaptiveness, which is important in dealing with change, and innovation, which is coming up with new ways to do things, which is important during change. Creativity, empathy, which means you're more able to understand what people around you are going through so you can help them more and be uh, a little bit more empathetic for them. And perseverance, so sticking with it, not getting halfway up that change curve and then jumping off. Okay, and last is taking action. 
So what what specific things can you do when you're going through change to try to make this a little bit better? Uh, you can ask questions. Uh, your brain is going to try to fill in blanks. When there's change, it no longer knows things that it used to know. Your brain is designed to fill in any blank that it sees and usually with the worst case scenario. So if you have questions, go find out the answer, because if you leave it up to your brain, the answer is probably not going to be good and it might not even be right. This is also important to understand if you're the person that that people are coming to to ask questions, make sure those people get their answers because they will fill in the blank with the worst case scenario themselves. And they will think that they're getting fired and the company is going out of business because no one is getting filled in this blank for them and that's where their brain is going. Um, also find partners, uh, make this something social where it, even if it's just a matter of just you know regularly meeting with somebody and saying, how is this change going for you? How are you adapting to this thing? This is how it's going for me. Uh, gamifying means turning anything into a competition or something where where uh, everybody's sort of either competing or working together. So, you know, the examples that I saw when I was looking at this was things like putting a jar on the table and saying uh, the first person to complain about the, the new report system has to put a quarter in the jar or something like that. Or uh, the first person to meet this milestone or the first person to be able to do this thing in this amount of time, any sort of achievement with the new change. Maybe that person, y'all go out to lunch and that person gets their lunch paid for. Just anything kind of sort of low grade competition like that uh, can, can help sort of engage some of the contribution and some of the mastery aspects of the motivation. Uh, also train. So in addition to asking questions, you know, go, you know, read about um, uh, things that are going to help you, um, whether it's just a quick article, online book, take an online course or at work, go find somebody that knows what they're doing and get them to help you with something. Uh, also rest, talked about the importance of sleep and the importance of, of not going through chronic stress. So find spots where you can kind of relax a little bit. When you get a break, don't think I've got a break. Okay, now I need to go do something else. Sometimes, sometimes you need to take a minute for yourself and recharge. And also know your limit and kind of track that. Uh, you might sometimes need to say, this this here is going to be too much. Um, I am not giving you permission to tell your boss, no, I don't want to do that because uh, of the change curve. But, <laughs> but I am saying like maybe if there's something going on at home, maybe that needs to be pushed off a little bit because you're dealing with too much somewhere else. So in summation, what you can do is assess the situation and map it out so you know what to expect, when to expect it. Uh, motivate yourself, autonomy, mastery, and contribution. Try to tap into each one of those. Take care of yourself with uh, nutrition and exercise. Get enough sleep. Engage in some kind of mindfulness. Give your mind a break a little bit every once in a while. Engage in some kind of play, whatever form that is. And then take action, those things that I just talked about. So that is everything that I have to say today about change. So at this point, does anyone have any questions or any comments? Any uh, Anybody have any helpful suggestions in terms of de-stressing, in terms of how they deal with change and ways that they've found to be successful? Hey, Miles, uh, James mm -hmm. here. Yeah. Great stuff, great content. I, uh, I, I appreciate the expeditious manner in which you delivered it as well. Um, you know, uh, change, as you said, is is hard at, at different levels of hard for different folks, different situations. But when possible, I've always tried to engage the team, those affected, in in what that change looks like. You know, and and how 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 we implement that change and help them mm -hmm. set timeline. I think. That helps the immediate members of the team to 
you know, to, to have a part and, and reduces the, you know, maybe some of the stress uh, and shortens the timeline a little bit. Uh, but I think, I think you're dead on. There's, there's some, there's, I had some good takeaways, just, you know, personal habits and, you know, making yourself rest the brain and, and step away, I think is, is very important uh, mm-hmm. to get perspective and, and to um, just kind of, you know, break the cycle of, of, you know, concentrating on something. So great stuff. I appreciate the content. Appreciate you taking time. Yeah, yeah, of course. Yeah, yeah. And and I'm, I'm glad you mentioned that about communication, engaging the team. The, the Really, the most important thing is for people not to feel like they're in the dark, because like I said, their brains fill in the blanks with the worst case scenario. So so engaging early and engaging often and, and let, having people know what to expect so they can plan for it and react to it. All right. Any other questions or comments from anybody? Hey, Miles. Um, So I'll say, you know, as someone who implements a lot of change on people, (laughs) one thing I've noticed is, you know, whenever we are out there, sometimes, you know, there will be a push that like, oh, people need to work late to do these things. They need to stay longer to learn the things and they need to, you know, everything is like work more, stay longer, stay later. And a lot of times that's not the answer. So what you're talking about, you know, know your limits, rest, don't overdo it. I think that's important because the next day you will come back more refreshed or, you know, if we go eat dinner as a team or something like that, um, just getting people to allow themselves to not get overworked. It really is so important. Um, and yes, things have to get done, but at a certain point, you're not being productive and people aren't learning anything else if they're just completely exhausted. Yeah, ex- exactly. That's that's a really good point because that's not a message that people are naturally going to embrace a lot of the time. I mean, just really society at large tells us to be busy and be active and to work more. Um, and sometimes you have to do that and sometimes it's going to be tough and you're going to work long hours. But uh, giving people permission to, to say like, no, I, I really need to go recharge not just because of weakness, but because if you don't, you're, like you said, not going to be productive. If you think of the example of like an athlete, you know, if you finish playing a basketball game, the first thing you do is don't, is not go play another basketball game. It's, it's go sit down and, and, you know, ice your knee for a little bit before you get back out there. All right. Anyone else? Any other questions or comments? One of the big things that I know is just getting the team to decompress. It's every, mm-hmm. every now and then somebody's got to hit a reset button. Mm-hmm. Yeah, uh, the, the term rejuvenate actually means to make new again. So when you think about like rejuvenation, you know, social activities, getting outside of work and and uh, or even just individually somebody going off and doing something. It, it allows you it really does almost physically allow you to come back in with a with a reset button just kind of dropping your stress level and dropping your level of overload and, and at that point you're able to process better one of the things about fight or flight is it puts you in a binary mode of thinking as well and there's research about when people are in that binary binary mode of thinking they can't solve problems as well um, their brain is not in that mode so when you're in that mode if you can't decompress you're not going to be able to come up with outside of the box solutions you're not going to be able to think about things in a different way so um, just from a productivity and efficiency standpoint that's important uh, agreed. All right. Anybody else? Comments, questions?
All right. Well, I really appreciate everybody being here today. Um, the follow-up information here. So uh, if you have any questions, comments uh, for PLN, you can just send that to me. I'm at Smith M1. Next month's session is going to be a day in the life of a service advisor. So I've got a couple of service advisors in the company that have agreed to come on and do a webinar where they're going to talk about what their job is like, what does it look like on a day-to-day -day basis, what challenges do they face, what are things that are helpful to them. And I'm actually hoping to do a, a, a series of these so we can kind of see what it's like for different people out in the company. So that's going to be next month. So look for for that uh, and then I'm going to drop the survey in here in just a second if anybody wants to grab it from the chat and do it otherwise it'll be in the follow-up email I really do read those and that's often where I get ideas for what kind of sessions we should be doing in the future so uh, and also how I'm doing the sessions uh, so I'm, I'm always open to that feedback so I really appreciate that um, as a follow-up to this I'll send out a link to the recording of this and also to the presentation itself I also threw together a quick one pager that's a quick summary of the points that I went through in this. Uh, so that's available um, if that's helpful to you or feel free to forward that on to somebody else if they weren't able to be here or if you think they'd find it interesting. So, all right, uh, and give me one second and I'm going to drop that link into the chat. And other than that, that is everything I have for you guys today. So I really appreciate everybody for being here. Tell all your friends. Thank you, Miles, appreciate you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. A lot of good information on this one. I'm good. Good. I'm glad. Thanks. Thank you. We appreciate it.